0: Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to this third class on the topic of Christian unity for the Thames Valley Churches of Christ. We recorded two classes in June on the topic of complete unity, and that was going to be it. But I've had so many requests for more teaching on the topic of Christian unity from other angles that I'm going to do two more classes in the month of July, this being the first of those two. Jesus prayed, didn't he, in John chapter 17, that his followers would be in complete unity. What does that mean? Well, today what we're going to talk about are a couple of things that are vital if we're going to have true Christian unity in the way that Jesus had his vision. And it's this, unity depends on truthful, grace-filled relationships. Unity depends on truthful, grace-filled relationships. We're gonna explore this a little bit today. Of course, there's so much to say on this that I'm only gonna scratch the surface but I I leave that to us in our family groups and other groups to have good discussion about what the scriptures mean in more depth. I trust you with that because I know you love the word. Healthy unity depends on two things. It depends on truthfulness and grace in our relationships. An overemphasis on truth, what does that do? It leads to a culture of judgment and harshness. An overemphasis on grace, or perhaps we could say grace without that truth, leads to a culture of perhaps sentimentalism. What did Jesus come to be like or what was he like when he came in John chapter 1 and, uh, and verse 14? The Word became flesh. We've seen his glory who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. If he was full of it. We need to be full of grace and truth, of course. So our congregations will be healthily unified if we imitate Jesus and develop a culture in our groups of truth speaking and grace giving. Let's examine these two thoughts today. Firstly, truth speaking. Truth speaking has always been a challenge. Uh, for some of us more so than others. Uh, perhaps you're of the personality type where you don't have much of a filter and you just tell the truth to anybody at any time, whatever's going on, that's just the way you live. For others of us, speaking the truth to one another is quite a challenge. We're afraid or we're not sure, or we're unconfident. We have perhaps our family background make it difficult. But truth speaking is vital to relational harmony. In Zechariah chapter eight verse sixteen, the prophet says, "These are the things you are to do: speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts." God has a healthy future in mind for His people post-exile, but they've got to be different. In Ephesians chapter four verse fifteen, it says, "Speaking the truth in love." There's some grace reference there, really. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Maturity comes, at least in part, through speaking truthfully to one another. Or what about later on in the same chapter, verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. He's talking about your Christian neighbor here, as in in within your Christian community. Speak truthfully. We're all members of one body. We're all here to help each other move together to maturity put off falsehood, he says. It does seem, since Paul uh, talks about that twice in verse 15 and 25, there seems to be a bit of a problem uh, with healthy truth-telling in the church in Ephesus. How's your group? How is your group? Is it a a natural part of the group culture that you tell truth to each other? You know, in Matthew chapter 18, we have a a well-known passage, which I haven't got time to unpack completely here, but this might be a good passage for you to discuss in your group, where Jesus says, regarding conflicts between Christians, if your brother or sister sins, go and point it out, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Excellent. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. If two of you agree about anything, it'll be done by my Father in heaven. Where two or three gather, there am I with them. So what's the goal here? The goal here is not church discipline. It's often used in that context, and there's a place for it to a degree, but that's not the point of the passage. What Jesus is talking about here is winning them over. That's the goal here. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Isn't that a wonderful thing when you have a conversation of honesty with somebody, truthfulness, and and you win them over? Not like you batter them into submission to agree with you, but they realize they were wrong, they admit they were wrong, and there's a healing that takes place. Or perhaps they see they were wrong and admit they were wrong, and then you realize actually you were a bit wrong too. <laughs> Isn't that often the case when there's a sin issue between two Christians? There's usually two parts to the uh, to the to the equation here. Nonetheless, we want to be won over and win others over So that there can be reconciliation That's the idea This, in Matthew 18, is not a formula It's not a, a tick-box thing Have they done this? Have we done that? Have we done that? Oh, well, now we better chuck them out of the church That's not what the passage is about It's not a formula, it's not a process It's, it's personal It's human it's, it's loving It's wanting there, finding a way for there to be healing and what do we need to do? He says at the beginning, go. Go and point out their fault. That means you and I are going to have to take personal initiative to resolve things when people sin against us. We can't just wait magically for some kind of reconciliation to fall out of the sky. We need to go take that initiative and point out. Point out what they've done wrong, or at least what, actually what's the phrase? Let me just check. Point out their fault. Okay, point out their fault. So what does that mean? I think what it means is speak what you see as faulty. In other words, or, or perhaps speak what you feel or what you observe anyway. In other words, we're not passing judgment. I saw this and as a result, it tells me you are really proud. That's what the answer is here. You're really proud, you need to repent. Well, maybe, or maybe you observed something and, and have drawn a conclusion from that that's not accurate. So point out something. Right? That's much better than pointing the finger. Yes, point out something rather than point the finger. I think that's a pretty good maxim. What do you think? And then he says, if that doesn't work, get one or two others along. Not so it's like a trial. When he talks about witnesses here, he's not saying put them on trial, but more adding the additional weight of multiple witnesses to say, well, I observed it and so did she and so did he. So what's going on? It's more like that. The word listen is repeated three times. The aim is that they will see truth, not be condemned. What does he mean if they won't listen to the church, which because in this context is a small group, it's not 300 people here. It's like a, a family group, really. If they won't listen to the whole group, the people who know them, because these are people that they'd have been intimately fellowshipping with. So if they won't listen to people who really know them, what do we do? Do we pass judgment? I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He tried to help them to feel loved. So it's not that we don't love them anymore. It's more recognizing a breakdown in Christian fellowship, but still treating them with love and respect, holding on to hope uh, for them and hope that your relationship with them will be healed one day. So at least that's some of what it means to speak the truth. What do you think? What do you think it means to speak the truth to one another in love? Let's talk secondly about grace giving grace giving. You know, right after this passage in Matthew chapter 18, in the next section, uh, there's as a parable prompted by Peter saying to Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister whose sins against me? Okay, so I, I got to be forgiving. Fine. How much? Up to seven times, he says, which Peter probably thought was being pretty radical because your average rabbi in those days said mm, three times is enough. Seven. Are you impressed, Jesus? I'm willing to go that far, and Jesus says, "I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times." I don't think he's giving a number. And point he's making is, you're thinking wrong about this whole issue, Peter. And he tells the parable of the kingdom being like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. A man owes him ten thousand bags of gold. It's an unimaginable amount of money, billions of pounds, and he can't re- repay. So the master says, uh, sell everything, uh, his wife and his children to repay the debt. He falls on his knees, be patient, he begs, I'll pay back everything. The master takes pity on him, cancels the debt, cancels the debt, doesn't give him time, just cancels it, lets him go. That servant goes out, finds one of his fellow servants who owns him, owes him a 100 silver coins, some money, but not that much. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay it back. Same kind of thing. He refused. He went off, had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Other servants noticed. They were outraged, went to tell the master what had happened. He calls the master in and says, you wicked servant. I cancelled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I did on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured, pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You could have a great Bible study about this together. A great family group conversation, I'm sure. That's Matthew 18, 21 to 35. What are we getting at here in terms of being grace-filled with one another? What is Jesus trying to get across to us? Well, firstly, firstly, a Christian is looking for the maximum they can forgive, not the minimum. We're not looking to to, to just say, oh, I'll, I'll forgive you as my, just as as little as I need to, right? But no, how, how much how much grace can I give? How much forgiveness? I want to give as much as possible. That's like Jesus, right? The Pharisees said three times was enough. God calls us to the same kind of limitless grace that he offers you and me. We are the recipients of forgiveness after forgiveness after forgiveness. I'm sure in my Christian life, I've been forgiven by God far more than 70 times seven. We're looking for the maximum not for the minimum. That's the spirit of grace we're called to live into. And the truth is, this is my experience. tell me what you think. I think sometimes grace is easier to give to people in the world than it is in the church. There's something about being sinned against by Christians that hurts more. It seems to be more painful. And that may be why we sometimes struggle to forgive Christians. We think they should know better, and don't they know how much they've hurt us? And of course, we then have to still worship with that person next Sunday or something. But think about it like this. Even though it can be so hard, even it, isn't it all the more glorious when we do forgive? When we do forgive, even though we struggle, when we do, something deep, foundationally transformational takes place in us as we grow into more of the likeness of Jesus. And the fact we live in a sinning community means that it's one of the ways that Jesus helps us become more like him or the spirit helps us to become more like him because we're giving lots of opportunities to forgive people. You could live with your physical neighbors in in your street without necessarily forgiving them, but you've got to forgive your brother or sister who you see every Sunday and maybe every other Wednesday or whenever it is. You've got to do that. And I say we've got to because God commands it which doesn't necessarily make it easy, but we do have the inspiration of Jesus, our hero. We do have the Holy Spirit, and we have the encouragement of each other to help us to forgive one another. There are ways for this to be a reality in our experience. So some questions to think about. How hard or easy do you find it to tell truth to a fellow believer? Hard or easy? And and why is that your experience? And similarly, how hard or easy do you find it to give grace to a fellow believer when they need it? And why might that be the case? What kind of questions arise regarding to about how to bring things up with people and when to do so and whether it's a topic that really matters or not? Because sometimes we need to overlook an offense, as it says in Proverbs. How do we work that out? How do we get the discernment to know whether this is something worth bringing up or not and when and how? Fourthly, How do you know when you're being gracious in a good way and when you're being just sentimental? In other words, are you really forgiving or are you just sort of papering over some cracks here and not really dealing with issues? What does that look like? How does that feel? You know, Jesus was a master at both truth-telling and at grace-giving. Why not, perhaps you might want to do this, is scan a gospel looking for what you can learn from him in the act of truth-telling and in his acts of grace-giving. Maybe go through the Gospels once looking for truth-telling and once looking for grace-giving. What do you learn about Jesus and what does that teach you for yourself about being someone who grows in these areas? Truth is, you and I know Christian fellowships are far from perfect and they will never be perfect. But if we grow in our loving ability to truth-tell and to grace-give, then I believe any Christian community can thrive. It can grow into a greater Christ-likeness and it can display his love to a love-starved world. Jesus prayed for complete unity. Not going to happen if we don't tell the truth to one another. Not going to happen if we don't give grace to one another. But can be a reality. This complete unity can be a reality if we learn how to tell the truth, how to give and receive grace, and to God be the glory with that. Let me know what you think about this topic. If you've got any questions, drop me a line, malcolm at malcolmcox.org. Uh, I haven't yet decided on the topic I'm going to cover in two weeks' time, so if there's an aspect of unity that you'd like me to cover, again, please drop me a line, and I hope and pray between now and the next time we see each other that we will find ourselves being drawn into more and more complete unity. Till the next time, take care. bless.